Success is always on the, uh, on the, on the opposite side of adversity, not on the front side of it. What's shaking? Welcome back to the All In Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. And today I have an amazing dude who's an avid business founder and acquisition investor. I'm really excited to talk to him because I'm in acquisition mode right now. He disrupts the status quo and creates cultural shifts. Not only that, he's a regular contributor on Forbes, Entrepreneur, CNBC, and other top-line publications. He and his wife, Jessica, have more than 50 companies in their ecosystem and... He's a guitar guy like me, former renegade musician, Matt Mead. Welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, Jordan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good. I'm pumped today because you've got an interesting trek, and I would love to take like a like a step through Matt Mead's life. Is that cool? Let's do it. Awesome, man. <laughs> so there's some things that stuck. Go real for quick. It. Sorry. Obviously, I just called you Jordan, but I meant Rick. Dude, it's what, and, what my gym teacher used to call me. It's cool. Yeah. 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 No worries. Uh, around here, uh, I tend to call everybody by their last name and it's just habit. Yeah, so. man. That's okay. I've got I'm the dude that has like two first names anyway. So it's cool. It works out. Yeah, of right on. So uh, something that stuck out because I've got like an order that I was thinking of here. We'll see if we actually follow that order, right? If we get pulled off track a little bit, but this was, I've, a, yet, <laughs> I've yet to be on a podcast where we followed the order. I know, right? so. <laughs> Great. Let's have fun. So this was interesting to me. This is really like where you kind of like launch things. You had a printing business, right? And then somehow fell into a Mexican food restaurant. Sure. Dude, that's just crazy. What happened with that? My wife and I, uh, so I had to go back in time quite a ways, but uh, some 25 years ago, I went to, uh, I, I left home at an early age. Uh, it's two months shy of my 17th birthday, spent about a year and a half homeless uh, after leaving home, managed to uh, work my way into you know three jobs. Once I, I got out of that situation, I was at my third job, which was uh, working as a bar back. A gentleman by the name of Peter Klingenberg came in, we struck up a conversation and he said, kid, if you can talk to anybody the way that you're talking to me, I can teach you sales and it'll change your life. And he said, there's just one problem. I'm here for one night. I'm passing through. If you want to learn, um, pack a bag and be at my hotel at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning and you can get in the car and come with me and I'll teach you sales. And I uh, went home that night. I knew that uh, opportunities like this didn't happen very often. And I just believed him. There was just something about he was a, I mean, he was the epitome of, of a salesman. So, but he closed without closing. Right. And so he, uh, I went home, uh, gave everything I had to my roommates, packed a bag, 8 a.m. the next morning. I'm at the hotel waiting. He said, get in, let's go. Um, for the next, uh, I worked for him for almost two years, year and a half, two years. And uh, the first, He's, he was in the printing and publishing business. This is how we ended up in the printing and publishing business. And so <clears throat> for he sold uh, real estate uh, relocation newcomer guides for Chamber of Commerce. So the Chamber of Commerce has a welcome to our city type guide. He printed, designed, published those magazines. And those magazines are, are sponsored by advertising. And so Pete uh, was the epitome of a tough love mentor. I really don't even look at it from a standpoint of, mentorship. I was an apprentice, right? I worked for free. I carried his bags. I did whatever the guy asked. 
And if I didn't make enough in sales, he'd literally drop me off at one end of the town and pick me up at the other. And he'd tell me, hey, listen, if you don't write five grand between here and here, you sleep in the car. You know, you don't make enough for a hotel room. And so I slept in that car for like seven months. But what Pete did that was amazing for me was he, every day he'd say, okay, well, you didn't make enough. Give me every objection that you had. And I'd tell him, okay, well, here, you know, I was talking to this lady, I did this, you know, and he'd say, okay, here's how you overcome that. And it took six months of him just drilling it into my mind. But ultimately uh, we reached a place where I was able to exceed the threshold, start staying in a hotel room, and then ultimately continue to go. And, and I rode warriored it with him for the better part of two years. He went through a, a divorce. Uh, things went south. He tried to keep it afloat and uh, he wasn't able to. And <clears throat> so he came to me and he said, listen, I know I owe you five grand, which think back 25 years ago, five grand was a substantial amount of money for a young man. And, um, and he said, I, I can't pay you. So here's a Mac Performa 525 in my client list. You know what to do. You're in business for yourself now. And uh, so that was kind of the start of how I ended up in the printing and the publishing business. I just went and fulfilled contracts that were already in place. And <clears throat> somewhere along the way, I met my beautiful wife and managed to convince her to come to work with me. She to leave her job over at Frost Bank and come to work with me. And uh, I always laugh because the day she came to work for me, she literally, she walked in, she says, honey, do you know the difference between gross and net? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. What do you mean? What are you talking about? And she said, well, <clears throat> do you know what a PNL is? And I was like, I, I don't know. Is is that some sort of sex game or something? Like, I, I, I don't know. I'm like, that's an M PNL. I don't know. What's a PNL? Put that in the and show notes. Like, PNL is a sex game, please. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and uh, and she said, "Babe, you're you're literally the poorest person I know." You told me you were making all this money. I was like, "I'm making sixty grand a year." What are you talking about? She goes, "Yeah." And by the time you're done, you're living off of eight. You know. <laughs> so, and twenty five years ago, sixty grand was executive level salary, right? So, <clears throat> so nonetheless, um, so. She came on board. We built and grew that to, uh, you know, millions a year and publishing 28 different magazines annually or biannually. And it was good. And then we've always uh, I was very fortunate. My wife is a very entrepreneurial mindsetted uh, woman, meaning that she's successful in her own right. She has her own thing. I think you've spoken to her before. And um, so it's really interesting the uh, kind of the journey that we've been on, I would build something and I would get it to a certain level. And she had this instinctive way of knowing when I was getting bored, when I, when it had kind of run its course. And so she would come to me and she would say, babe, look what you did. I'm so proud of you. You're the man. You did it. You took us from 200 to 400, from 400 to 600. But is this it? <laughs> Dude. Is, is this the limit of our potential together? And I would, ah, you know, I'd go, I'd go gorilla like anybody else. And uh, why is it not enough? It's never enough. You know, you're always pushing me. You know, you don't know the stress I'm under. All of the normal. She'd just sit there calmly. She'd wait on me. Then I'd calm down. I'd be like, ah, damn it. You're right. 
All right. Well, you, you go figure out what to do with that business. You sell it, do whatever you're going to do with that. And I'm going to go build some, go build it, baby. you know? And we just had this very uh, unique journey together where we've, you know, triaged, incubated, accelerated, bought, sold, whatever, you know, whatever you want to tag to it. Each one's a little bit different, but one of them ended up being a transition from uh, the publishing business into the restaurant business. When we sold off the publishing company, um, we, you know, they, you know how it is when you sell business, they buy the good accounts, they leave the bad accounts behind. So I was somewhat work optional, had a, a non-compete, you know, in the, in the particular vertical that we had spent so much of our time in. And we, uh, I, I, I went around trying to collect all the money people owed me <laughs> and had this chain of Mexican restaurants that owed us 30, 40 grand, whatever it was. And, uh, and the guy, you know, had three locations, two of them were on valet parking and a two hour wait seven days a week. And one of them was just dying on the vine. And he said, can I sell my debt by giving you a restaurant? <laughs> I'm like, well, so unique. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay. Um, yeah, sure. Why not? And, uh, so I ended up in the restaurant business and one night this lady calls and she says, um, she says, if you look out your back door of your restaurant, that fence right over that fence, that's my house. And I've got my eight grandkids here and I have a Toyota Camry. <laughs> and so I have no way they want Mexican food. I have no way to get them all to you. Would you deliver me Mexican food? And remember, think back now, go, this is, this is more than a decade ago. No Postmates, no Uber, no Eats, Uber Eats, no yeah. anything, no DoorDash, pizza or yeah. Chinese right? Pizza or Chinese food, right? That was, that was all you could get. And those were your delivery options. And so um, I said, you know, ma'am, we're not built for it, whatever. She goes, listen, I'll give you a $20 tip. If you would just figure it out. So, oh, I've got styrofoam containers. I, I don't care. Package it any way you can. I got to feed these kids. I said, you know what, ma'am? Okay. Took an order. She ordered a hundred dollars worth of food, more just over a hundred dollars worth of food. That's a lot of Mexican food, bro. <laughs> she got eight kids. She got eight yeah, grandkids. So, a lot of tacos. That's a lot of Mexican food. Yeah. And so she ordered a hundred dollars worth of food. Um, I package it up best we can. I take it around. I deliver it to her. She gives me 20 buck tip. Just like she said she would. I come back and I get back and I go home that night and I said, somebody's missed the boat because our average ticket was $32. And I just in 20 from start to finish of that order was 22 minutes. I was like in 22 minutes, I just turned three tables. And so that led to us morphing from this dine-in scenario to a scenario where um, I created the, at that time, the very first Mexican delivery chain, took it all the way through franchise hired the franchise group to come in and systemize it, took it and, and uh, were voted franchise of the year that year, franchise opportunity of the year that year, opened up six locations, commissary kitchen, systemized the whole thing. And during that process, there was no software to actually run the modifiers, no POS. So I bought an old pizza software that had gone out of business. It was written in C++, learned C++, rewrote the whole thing. And uh, ultimately that was, that was what led to, uh, the, you know, being able to systemize and organize the entire thing and make it, make it replicatable. And then we got out of that business, moved on to a bunch more. So that's how we go from printing to Mexican restaurants. That's incredible, man. I mean, make, the whole, the whole story. To yeah. Making millions. yeah. There was something that really stuck out of me. And I, I don't know if you've read this, but I'm in the middle of reading a book called the way of the superior man 
right now. And no, w- I haven't read it. When you were talking, I highly suggest it. Down. Yeah, it, we'll put in the show notes too for everyone listening and watching. But what you were talking about what, when she would come up to you, when you're, when Jessica would come up to you and say, you know, you know, th- this is great. You got us from here to here, but is that all there is for us? Yeah. You know, is that, that the limit of our, her line was always, is this the limit of our potential together? Yeah, yeah. I love that. Because, by the way, if it is, I'm okay with it. I'll live right here in this box with you because I love you. If this, if this is it, I just feel like there's more for us. Yeah, right on. And the book, and thank goodness she did, <laughs> dude. Because yeah. because I would have been I, I'm a man without moderation, right? So I, I'm either to the extreme or I'm to the other extreme. I'll go one way or the other, and uh, I very easily could have could have remained complacent in any one of those businesses, and just that would have been my life. But she saw more for us. So that's awesome. There's parts in the book where it talks about a lot of men that don't have, and maybe this is going to turn into a guy show. I don't know. But a lot of men don't have, it even talks about like, you know, they dive into a lot of sports and all this other stuff because they don't, they literally don't have the balls to go out there and do it. You know, but then, you know, those are ones that might have a little bit more feminine qualities to them. But your wife, maybe without even realizing, because you talk about words of appreciation, right? The five love languages and all that stuff. And a lot of men will say that, oh, I need words of appreciation. But that the book is actually calling that out as BS because that, that's not what actually moves a man. It's great because she started saying, I'm proud of you. That's that's great. But then she immediately moved into challenging your masculinity, you know? And, and that's what we, at least the men of the men, right, actually respond to in those circumstances, you know, for, for women that are listening, that, that we respond to that when we say, you know what, this is great, but you know what, what's the big deal with going after something else? Are you, are you scared or something? You know, <laughs> and we get to be like, Hey, just like you said. And then we go after it even further, dude. That's awesome. It's a good book though, man, because I mean, that's the way to really approach a man and how we end up responding, how you approach a, a real masculine man anyways, in order to drive them forward as a, as a partner, because other times, I mean, the men that are happy with the, the day jobs and whatever else, you know, which is fine, you know, if that's what they feel like they want, but the ones that don't necessarily have the balls to go out there and grab what they really desire, their purpose in life, that's not going to resonate with those dudes, but it resonates with guys like us. It was like, okay, you, you, you tell me that, you know, that you want me to go up one notch, whatever, I'll take it up 10. Take that, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's and it's very much the 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 case as well. The the latest deal that I just finished, where I'm sitting right now, and I'm I'm not in my normal uh, office environment because I'm sitting in a in a Nissan and Volkswagen dealership. I just did a twenty million dollar deal here in Stockton, California. Uh, it was a closed Nissan facility, and uh, it was just that Nissan told me I didn't qualify. Told me told me I, I couldn't be a Nissan franchisee. I'd never owned a Nissan dealership before, and and I, uh, I had not managed or run a Nissan dealership for five years. I'd not been to dealer school or anything else. It's like, oh, well, that's, that's the wrong thing to tell me. So <laughs> tell um, me I can't again, please. One more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. please. So uh, I promptly uh, broke all records and opened a Nissan dealership in 45 days from the day I made the phone call. And they told me I didn't qualify to the day we sold the first car at a closed location that had homeless people living in it. Um, it was 75 days to the day and uh, exceeded exceeded all their expectations. And um, so, you know, yeah, I, I think that there is definitely something about knowing and understanding uh, what drives somebody. I, I love no, as an example. I love being told no. 
I, I love the lessons behind no. I love when a deal unwinds on me because those are the only thing. It's easy for me to close deals. I close deals all the time. I'm building businesses. I'm buying, doing things. When I lose a deal is when I learn the most. That's whenever I go back and I rethink and I retrace and, okay, how did we lose this deal? And I always start every deal the same way too. If you and I were doing a business transaction, first thing I'd ask you is, okay, tell me how we lose. How do we lose in this deal? Because if we can map a path to loss, then we can identify all the potholes that lead to loss and we can map a path around to the wind, to the wind. And so that's been a, it's a big, been a big part of our strategy for years and how I do things. So. That's awesome, man. I love it too when the curveballs get thrown in because you, you try to strategize and I'm good the same way where we, I, I'm able to see lots of different forks in the road. But then when something comes, you know, one of those potholes that you're talking about that you don't anticipate, I'm like, awesome. <laughs> let's, let's see how this thing plays out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Didn't see that one coming. Wow. Cool. You know, I love it. I love it too when people behave very uncharacteristically. And in, in a, especially in a, a negotiation or, or a transaction, and you realize how outside their comfort zone they are, because I love watching their own growth through that process. It's so fun, isn't it? It is. It is. I love that. Anybody that works for me that's in any kind of coaching, you know, and I, of course, as a leader, you coach your, your team, but then I invest in coaches outside the organization too for key people. And I, I love just sitting back and watching the struggle because it's like, yeah, I was there, you know, three years ago. And now I get to watch it. I get, it's almost like I get, I get extremely gratified and fulfilled from being able to watch the struggle that I've put other people in because I know I can already see their potential on the other side. It's so incredible, yeah. man. It's amazing. Success is always on the, on the, on the opposite side of adversity, not on the front side. Yeah, of it, for so. sure. It's so fulfilling, man. And then that, that just pumps us up even more to, to push ourselves because when we see us creating uncomfortability for everyone else around us, that's on our team that works for us or a partner, you know, then at that point we can say, cool, where can I push myself even further? How can I be better for these individuals who have now just gone through this incredible growth phase in their life? That means I got to step it up too. I got to keep Absolutely. rolling. Yep. Absolutely. That's awesome, man. So that was, that was an amazing story. I mean, we we just ate up 20 minutes just talking about some awesomeness there. Yeah. It's interesting. I was looking around and looking at your background. I'm like, that looks like an auto dealership, but that's a, it's a great yeah. story behind that. Yeah. yeah, no, it is a, it's a massive dealership. I have two, 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 two buildings on 12 and a half acres here. Um, it's a, it's a, it was a, it's a good deal. We, we without it sounding uh, to uh, Charlie, you know, my brand strategist, said, you know, hey, you got to be real careful how you deliver that message. And I'm like, okay. It's just like, cause it'll sound real goody goody. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, so this one, this was a client, right? So these were clients that Lithia group uh, is a, is a huge publicly traded auto group. And they were clients of ours that are in one of my software companies. And the, they shut down like 17 stores, made some really, really smart moves. We're able to write off a couple of hundred million dollars. And then they went and you know, leverage that to return a higher than expected quarterly earnings per share. You know, they did a lot of really smart, raised another 400 million from the market, went and borrowed a billion, you know, with 30% down and bought a, you know, bought a whole nother 17 store group that was way superior to the 17 that they closed or whatever. And then they took the other hundred million and borrowed 400 million and went and bought 12 more. So just, I'm just watching and learning. I'm like, man, that's a master's class. It really is. Leverage it right, 
And but the unfortunate side effect was they did it in March of 2020, right as the pandemic began. And 72 people lost their jobs at this particular facility. And it was, you know, I knew some of the management team that was here because I'd obviously worked with them. Our team, our companies had worked with them. And uh, and I worked with one of them for the better part of seven years. And Brian is his name. And Brian and Terry are just really great salt of the earth guys, just trying to provide for their families and stuff. And eight months later, still no work. Wow. And, and, uh, you know, the, we had some conversations and the opportunity came, you know, uh, for me to look at the deal. And, and so I looked at it and, uh, didn't think it was going to be able to happen because Nissan said it couldn't happen, you know? So, uh, we were able to put it back together, but we, when my wife and I talked about it, you know, we can make money, you know, uh, any day we, we see, making money is part of the, just part of the byproduct of the process that we run on a daily basis, but getting to save jobs is not something that we get to do every day. You got it, brother. Yeah. Uh, and so we, uh, we've put 42 people back to work, um, so far. And, and by the time I'm done, I'll have 70 plus, if not more at this particular facility, my wife did a similar thing with her company brand link. They, uh, there was an agency that was a, a client of ours at, at the software company. They were a channel partner, as we call them. And they, um, they were inside of a public shell and the public shell decided to sever the division. And, you know, 30 some odd people on New Year's Eve found out that there was no job on New Year's Day. Wow. And, uh, and so we actually forwent our New Year's Eve 2019 and structured a deal to hire hundred percent of that staff and roll them up into her company. And so uh, a lot of times it's not just about making the money. It's about, you know, the impact you can have. Um, I know that you're real big, real big into impact investing yeah, as well. For sure. Yeah. We just had Sir Ronald Cohen on just a, a couple minutes ago, literally. And the, yeah, the, the, I just, I just spent time in a room with him the other day on clubhouse. Nice. Yeah. We, same we here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we were probably in the same room. I, I bet you. Probably were. Yeah. <laughs> no joke, but yeah, it was pretty great because it, just talking about that and how it's incredible to see that the shift of banks and everything else is really going towards the realm of impact. Even when you're talking, you know, with the 30% down, and the debt financing, banks are more likely now to even finance in this economic turmoil that we have when there's legitimate impact. Because now the bank can chalk that up on the board and say, hey, look at the, the difference we're making in people's lives. So when you put 42 people back to work or whatever it is, or hiring on another 30 after that point, that's really what they're diving into. Very much so. I love that. So it's not just about making money because the money comes after the fact. We can make money at pretty much anything that we do, but... You said, man, the, the ability to save jobs or create jobs is something that's just incredible that you necessarily don't get to do every day. Yeah. And this comes down to kind of the root of entrepreneurship as a whole, right? It's, it's, it's what's, what's the purpose? It's not to remain a small business owner. So many people think, you know, uh, oh, I just want to stay small. I want to stay controlled. I want to keep it. I, I want to I scale it to see how a lot of people, too, will scale a business to a lifestyle. Right. They'll scale it to a specific lifestyle that, that sustains the lifestyle that they want. I, I mean, I scale stuff. I scale, I scale it to see how big it can possibly right get. on. Yeah, for and, sure. And I think that that's a huge you know, difference in the mindset. 
And then your wife comes around and just says, is this all we have for us? As soon as you get yeah. to that place. Is this enough? <laughs> yeah. I love it, man. That's yeah. awesome. Man, you had a partner bail a little while back in a similar, in a scenario, right? What happened with that? In 20, my wife and I have been together 23 years, been in business together 23 years. And in 23 years, I'd never done a business transaction that my wife didn't fully support. But I'm a nerd. And I'm, I was never one of the cool kids, you know, and uh, I had a situation where I had some health issues, weighed just over 300 pounds um, and uh, really was battling with food addiction and utilizing food as a, as a means for uh, complex stress relief <laughs> is a good way to put it. And, um, and I ended up uh, meeting a guy that was, you know, I, I'd backed into the auto industry uh, from a from the vendor side, from the technology side. I built a massive database. Um, we to this day we're the second largest consumer database in the U.S. Our identity graph spans, um, uh, you know, over 300 million U.S. consumers, uh, 220 million unique households. Um, I have an email uh, archive, 15-year email archive on 170 million plus. Uh, of those individuals have all of that, you know, hashed into SHA-256, SHA-1 and MD5 hashes so that you can go and target them across different custom audience targeting, whether that be a DSP side or at Facebook or Google or LiveRamp or wherever it is you might want to be. And so as we, uh, as I kind of backed into that, um, a, a guy calls me out of the blue and says, you you keep taking all our customers. I want to understand what makes your product better than my product. And I said, well, your product's Fagazi. It's, it's vapor. It's not real. And he goes, oh, we got, we got the best product on the market. And I was like, no, you have an ugly baby. You just think that it's, you know, the, the pageant queen, but it's not, it's uh, you know, it's, it's definitely got its flaws. Well, you, you can't back that. You can't validate that. I said, sure. I can. Let me, let me hop into your servers and I'll tell you exactly who's doing the parts and pieces that you think are being done. And then I'll show you the servers in Tel Aviv and on Hong Kong, where they're really going out and buying nefarious clicks and using bots and things to drive non-human traffic. And then that leads to, um, you know, you manipulating or them manipulating the Google Analytics UTM tags to say that it's what you say that you're doing, but you're not doing it. And that's why there's no real value behind what you're doing. And he goes, oh, no, that's not real. I was like, okay, well, just ask your vendor partner, because I know who you're outsourcing to, ask your vendor partner these questions. So long story short, fast forward, you know, a few months, guy calls me back, says, Mead, everything you said was going to happen, happen. What am I going to do? And I was like, you know, I, I, I don't know what you're going to do. And I had gone through a, a, a medical situation the day before. I thought I had a heart attack and uh, went over and had an EKG done and, and a bunch of stuff. And turned out my thyroid had shut down because of my weight and my gallbladder was all jacked up. And, and so there were some things. And so, and he, and I just didn't feel like talking to him. I was like, I'm not going to solve your problem. I, there's no benefit in me solving your problem. I'm just going to stick to my problems right now. And uh, he proceeded to say, well, what's wrong with you? You're, you're not your normal gregarious self from our previous conversation. I was like, oh, I'm going through some stuff. And he goes, you know, uh, well, tell me about it. And I'm like, I don't even know you. I've yeah. never met you. <laughs> this is the second phone call we've ever had. I'm not going to tell you about my personal life. And he goes, what's the matter? You got the cancer? You got the AIDS? Like, what's wrong? 
And I'm like, no, it's nothing like that. And he goes, well, then what, what the hell do you care if I know? Tell me, you know, <laughs> I started telling this guy. And it was the, it was the, you know, it's the craziest thing. I'm sitting there and I'm explaining the situation and I was like, but it's okay. They, they told me it was this pill. I could take this Synthroid, you know, whatever. And he, he says, Hey, have you taken that first pill yet? And I was like, no, I'm still trying to decide what course I'm going to go. If I'm going to try and do something different. He goes, if you'll give me an hour, I will explain exactly what's going on in your body and why you don't need to take that pill and how you can fix this problem. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, this guy's either about to sell me Amway or religion. Yeah, I no didn't kidding, right? you know? <laughs> He's already and, sold and I, you just, to tell him what's a, up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm just about to brush him off. And I hear a kid in the background go, daddy, daddy, um, you promised to take me for a bike ride. And I hear this guy go, son, you're right. But right now I need to save this man's life. Can you be patient for me? And I'm thinking in my head, this dude's either totally demented or he knows what he's talking about because nobody would say that to their kid. So I spend the next hour listening to uh, him map out what was back then. It wasn't called keto, right? And it uh, turns out before he got into the auto space that we had connected through, he ran a, a chain of medical weight loss facilities and, and a publicly traded thing. And the guy was an absolute brilliant you know, person and told me exactly what to do, exactly how to do it. And I, I thanked him for his time, went ahead and went forward and um, decided I'm going to do what the guy says. I don't talk to him again for, you know, three months, I get down 20 pounds, get down 30 pounds, you know, uh, anybody who's done, you know, that type of, you know, uh, catonic state, you know, type, uh, mil, you know, carb restrictive diet knows how fast they can come off once you, because your body can only burn two things, fat or carbohydrates for energy. And so for me, it was very, it was just very quantifiable. He's like, you're a nerd, you need data, right? And I'm like, cool, I'm going to give you all the data. And I was like, cool. So you know, I sat there and took copious notes and I did what he said. And so about 40 pounds down, I called the guy. I said, hey, listen, I'm down 40 pounds. I want to fly down to Florida and, and I just want to hug your neck, man. I feel like I truly feel like you did what you said. I'm, you know, I never thought I'd get the weight back off. I never thought I'd get control of the eating and, and everything else. And uh, so I flew down there, met him. And these dudes are, you know, the epitome of sales guys. They're cool, man. They're slick, you know, and, uh, and, and here I am this nerd, you know, that, uh, just builds some businesses and stuff. And, uh, and I get down there to Florida and, um, and I said, listen, I just wanted to say thank you. And I want to tell you, I, I owe you a favor. So what is it, you know, that I can do for you in return? He says, come fix my ugly baby. <laughs> okay. So for the next three, four months, I work on, you know, helping them put systems in place. It was a mess. The epitome of, you know, bootstrap street hustlers, you know, every employee was 1099, you know, yeah, they told them when to show up. Yep, they, I mean, yep. everything you can think that it done that you could do wrong in setting up a business, these guys had done it, man, but they were super cool. And, uh, and the reality is <clears throat> I was super appreciative and I continued to lose weight, lost over a hundred pounds and, uh, over the course of time. And, so I ended up in a situation where my wife said, hey, 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 uh, you remember you're doing all that for free, right? All, you know, like, and I get that and I'm happy, you know, that you're losing the weight and I, and I get all that. But you either need to get back to work on your business and making sure that our future is secured 
Um, or you need to go, you know, buy that company or do something, you know, if you put them a sign, you need to own it. And I'm like, so I, I call him up and I said, Hey, listen, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I can't keep, you know, spending so much time on this. I got to go work on my own company and grow it and stuff. Uh, my wife said, I've either got to, you know, go back to doing our stuff or I got to come, you know, I got, I got to come by your company. He goes, what are you waiting on? Get on the plane. Come on. He goes, well, I don't know. How to, I don't know how you've changed everything. I don't know how to do what you're doing. You know, how would we do it? And so <clears throat> I fly down, we strike an initial deal for 40%. Time progresses. We, my wife and I decide we don't want to stay in the deal. We did a six month test, you know, and we decided, you know, it's a good deal. They're good business partners, but I want to keep building my, my data company. I want to keep building the back end of what I'm doing. And uh, so we decide we're going to, you know, sever in part ways. And they're like, dude, like if you do that, like the whole thing shuts down, we have no clue how to run a company the way that you build all this infrastructure and these systems. And so I, I proceeded to, I proceeded to, uh, you know, take controlling interest. We took 60% stake and, uh, and put, you know, put together a proper advisory board, you know, did all the things built it, grew it from, you know, 2.3 million to 5 million and some change over the next, uh, 18 months. And, um, and one day I get a phone call and I'll just preface this by saying, you know, that business transaction took my wife and I, you know, from that seven, 800 range to, you know, over a million, like net, net, net take home, you know, type or, you know, kind of for the first time. Right. And uh, of getting to that level, we had always been successful, but always, and I, and I openly admit that I spent my first 14 years, even though we were entrepreneurs, it was a very irresponsible entrepreneur. And I have a book coming out called Irresponsible Entrepreneurship, which is about that 14-year journey and all of the stuff I had to learn from year 14 to year 23 that nobody teaches, right? That like it's all the stuff, you know, from understanding the tax laws and the tax codes, understanding, you know, all these different parts and pieces. It was just understanding how all that ties together has led to a very focused mindset towards responsible entrepreneurship and from and to profiting from your expenses, which is a really big part of it. And so, but with that particular deal, I hop on the board call and these guys have decided that my lion's share is too much now that I've grown it and theirs is too small. So they want out of the deal and they're the sales organization and I'm all the fulfillment. So long story short, it was a very tumultuous time. It was a very complex situation because as we did that and separated, there was an agreement that they would continue to utilize us. And so it wouldn't really affect cash flow and all these other things. And of course, my initial response, by the way, Rick, was I, no, sorry. I'm sorry you don't like your deal, but we made a deal and the deal's the deal and I have all the voting rights. So, you know, you know, like, no, I'm not going to, why would I unwind a great deal for me? I said, well, listen, hey, if you don't want to, no problem. Um, as the operating partners here, we're going to fire all the staff uh, tomorrow morning and we're just going to stop working. Wow. He had the leverage on you then in that realm. Well, they they wow. controlled the revenue. Yeah, right? exactly. On the sales side. And yeah. So the sales side. And, uh, and I said, uh, you wouldn't do that. And they were like, consider it done. You know, they just, they didn't care. I was like, I was like, I will file an injunction. I will do all the different things that our contracts let me. Okay, cool. And we'll battle that out for two years in court. Nobody will win except the attorneys. 
So no problem. In the meantime, we're going to go down the road, open a new office, hire all the same people back, put them to work under our new, under our new shingle, under our new umbrella. And we're going to take all the customers with us and there's nothing you can do. So I learned a lot about contract law. Yeah, you did. My God, man. And so uh, we literally went from, you know, million plus to zero to using the 250 reserve that we swore we would never touch. So now we're negative 250 while I had to rebuild the entire infrastructure of the company and get to a place where I was 30 days away from launching the new product and being able to go rebuild it all. And we were flat broke. We were negative 250. We'd gone through every penny that we had available to us, my wife and I. And I, <clears throat> I went to a, an advisory board, you know, person that I knew, uh, his name is Dave Watt and, and Dave is a 70 something year old, uh, investment banker guy who built a, you know, an $8 billion company. And I said, Dave, I, I need 40 grand. I got to be able to pay my house note and I got to be able to pay the staff. Now one person lost the, their job, by the way, during this whole process. We, we invested, we kept every single person employed that we had on our staff. That was important to us because we had several single moms on our staff at that time. And we just, we just did not want to, uh, we did not want that to be the legacy that, you know, of that particular journey that we were on. And so he said, you know, I, I'm going to give you the 40 grand. Your company's basically defunct. There's nothing to invest in. So I'm investing in you. And in my belief that you're going to actually pull this off, but it's going to cost you 10% on the money. And it's going to cost you 10% of your company, not just this one, not just this one, everyone you build in the future. My God. Talk about a VIG. Yeah, no kidding. Talk about a price tag. But I knew I just needed that 30 days and I knew what I was building and I knew what it was capable of. And so that's the story of how you know, that deal went south from a partnership standpoint. What I thought was the worst thing that had ever happened to me (laughs) by far is the greatest thing that ever happened to me because on the other side of adversity is where all the growth happened. And I took that 40 grand and parlayed that into that particular company has done over four and a half billion dollars in retail sales over the last 36 months. And we've that's resulted in us servicing thousands of clients with that particular software that I finished. And um, it's resulted in over $350 million worth of uh, verified client dealer profits. And, um, and it's resulted in, you know, my wife and I being able to build a portfolio that's worth over a hundred million now and, and do the, the things that we've been able to do. And then ultimately now we're at a stage where we're, taking that money and investing in companies with founders and principals that are, you know, like this project, I won't run this project long-term long-term. The plan will be that I'll turn it over to these guys that I helped now secure their future and reach a place of stability. I'll get it to the place of stability. They have to figure out how to get it to the place of significance. And so as we look at this whole process and one of the requirements and criteria that we have is you have to be willing to take a percentage of the equity from the business and put it down to a foundation that is then going to ultimately effectuate impact, not just in a global 
capacity, right? We're real big with the United Nations um, Sustainable Development Goals, the 2030 Agenda, and really trying to focus and understand the impact. And you just had a conversation with a great guy that knows a tremendous amount about that. And, um, and so, but also in the local communities, what can we do in the communities? How many more jobs can we create? Because I don't believe that our elected officials, and whether that be local, state, or federal, are going to solve some of the biggest issues that are facing our communities. I believe entrepreneurs will. And I think that as an investor and as a true entrepreneur who understands all the multiple facets that are involved in being an entrepreneur, it's your fiduciary and ethical responsibility to make sure that you understand the entire vision of what it is that you're building and how every decision you make and every move you make impacts those around you and the people that are entrusting their livelihood with your vision. And so anyway, that's, that's the story of how we got from, you know, uh, losing, you know, literally building everything up over a, a 16, 18 year period to losing it, to rebuilding it again. And uh, I will tell you the journey on the second half has been much funner than, uh, than the journey. On <laughs> no the, doubt. Uh, from so, from minus two hundred and fifty thousand in the hole to four and a half billion in revenue, that's that's incredible. And you you mentioned something too that I was going to talk to you about as we wrap up here: the four stages of entrepreneurship. You know, and you talked about you know when, when the dealership that you're in right now, going from stage three to four, from being stabilized, which you you're stabilizing them now, but then going to a place of significance. That's incredible. I love the first one too that's on there: being smart enough to get into business. Yeah, <laughs> it comes back to that fear stuff that we were talking about, right? And how many actually have the balls to go out and do it? Yeah, and and there's a lot, right? The, and the unfortunate part is they're smart enough to get into business, but they don't progress to a, And then maybe they make it to stage two where they're successful enough to make a little bit of money, but then That's they the never lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, they scale yeah. to a lifestyle, and they they build themselves a job, right? So. Whether that's a, a you know a, a gig economy worker, a solopreneur, a entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it, you know, and that's the reason that the statistic is you know somewhere north of eighty percent of all businesses fail within the first five years, um, and only you know uh, what's the statistic one percent or one percent of of all the businesses ever see a million dollars, and of that only seven percent ever see ten million dollars. It you know it's very interesting to me watching. Um, you know, how entrepreneurialism is perceived and distorted and misinterpreted inside of this socially driven ecosystem that we're watching. Um, you know, an entrepreneur is somebody who has enough vision to create something great while taking great risk themselves uh, at typically, you know, a huge risk of financial loss. But you, you know, I heard someone say recently that an entrepreneur is, is in essence, a liar at, 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 at their core because they take something that has never existed and, breathe, and, and breathes it into life, right? And speaks it into life. And I thought those are very interesting viewpoint. I don't know that I 100% agree with it, but you know the concept, I understand the, the logic behind it. In our heads, in your head, the idea and the concept makes total sense. You can do it. Everyone around you is like, oh, you're a liar. That's never going to happen. Yeah, that's not true. It hasn't happened. And you're like, well, it's not true yet. <laughs> it will be six months from now, 18 months from now. Right. 
And so it, it's super interesting. So yeah, the four stages that of entrepreneurialism as I see them are, you know, you're smart enough to get in business, then you're successful enough to make a little bit of money, and then you stabilize the business where you're working on it versus in it. And that's kind of that critical phase where you've created something that's, you know, somewhat sustainable for lengths of time. Maybe you can even function as an absentee owner. You don't have to be there hundred percent of the time you've created that, you know, that quality of life. But the interesting part about the rest of it is that you end up at level four, which I'll openly admit I'm at level three across all my companies. And I'm on a I'm on a mad mission right now to comprehend and understand what it means to get to a place of significance, because significance means I'm completely responsible for every single aspect. And I comprehend that responsibility to the point where I understand I must have a succession plan that my time on this planet is finite. And that all of these people will be impacted if I drop dead tomorrow of a heart attack. And so I'm taking serious my health. I'm taking serious all of the different things that have to be done. More importantly, I understand that my wife needs to understand and know all the moving parts. So she's not left reeling, trying to figure out how all of this chaos that's in my head worked in the physical world if I leave the physical world. And so there's a lot of things that come down to, especially. If you've built businesses and things that rely on impact. And so if you're making impact in communities, now you've got all these other people that you're responsible for. And so reaching a place of significance as an entrepreneur, to me, is the pinnacle. I've got a succession plan in place. I understand my tax strategies. I understand exactly how we're we're making an impact on, on the communities that we're serving, on the client base that we're serving, and in the world as a whole. I understand you know, all of the succession plans that need to be in place. I, myself personally, once a week, I sit down on Sunday mornings and I record a video just like we're recording right now. And, and I put it into a Dropbox and my wife knows if I drop dead tomorrow, she goes to the Dropbox and everything she needs to know is in a series of videos. Exactly where we are. She goes, starts with the latest one and goes backwards in time. And from the latest one, I give her all the updates of how everything has changed from the previous video, from the video before that, from the video before that. Because I have a responsibility as a husband, as a father, and as a business owner and an entrepreneur to not just her and my family, but to all the other families that chose to entrust their livelihood with my vision and my journey and my path. And so for me, I'm still, I'm still working on going from three to four. But once I reach four, man, I'm, I, I got to tell you, I will feel as though uh, my journey had some purpose behind it. So. That's awesome, brother. Matt, I really appreciate the conversation, man. You've inspired me today. And for everyone listening, mattmead.com, M-E-A-D, no E, and Instagram and Facebook is Matt Mead Official. Brother, thanks for lifting up everybody who's listened today and keep keep going. You know, 100 million? Come on. That's not enough. Is that is that all you got? <laughs> is, is that the limit of our, <laughs> is that the is limit? That the limit of our ability to get yeah. it? Come on, man. I love you got it. it. Thanks, brother. I love it. Well, thanks, thanks for the time, man. And, and, uh, you know, I'd love to do this again because I didn't, I really didn't get to hear anything about your journey. I want to learn a little more about what you got going on. You got it. What's shaking? Thank you for joining me on the All In Podcast. Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me 312-535-8520. 
follow me on social media at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode. I am Rick Jordan, and I approve this message.